Good morning. In 1975, which was before I was born, just for those people who think that I'm older than I am. Or they think I'm younger than I am. So we have some of those too, I think. Um, anyway, 1975, the Indiana Hoosiers had one of the best teams in the NCAA for men's basketball. They'd gone undefeated throughout the regular season. Of course, if you're a fan of the Indiana Hoosiers, you know that it didn't quite turn out great. During their game with Purdue and West Lafayette, Scott May broke his left arm. He was one of the best players. And the Hoosiers, they, they ended up going still, of course, to the NCAA tournament, where they were the top seed in the Mideast Regional at the time. And they made it to the regional finals, and there they faced this team called Kentucky. <laughs> right. <laughs> I got to preach it first service. From... <laughs> anyway, they had beaten Kentucky earlier in the year by 24 points. And uh, May uh, was limited, severely limited. He was in a cast, and he only played seven minutes in that game. And Kentucky ended up pulling out the upset, beating the Hoosiers 92-90. to And with that, the Hoosiers run in the NCAA tournament, and their season was over. It had to be tough for those players, right? They, especially for the seniors, like leading scorer Steve Green. That, would, that was going to be the seniors' last opportunity to win an NCAA championship. And everything had to feel like it was going perfect until it wasn't. You ever been a part of something where you feel like, you know, it's going so good. It's got momentum and you know, everything's just building and building and building. And it's like nothing is going to stop it. That's the way the Hoosiers probably felt. Like, you're going great until a wrench gets thrown into it, and then the momentum just stops, sometimes permanently. And then you're left thinking. You're left wondering. And you say, you know, I've devoted everything to this, and now it's done. It's finished. What do I do now? Now, Of course, Indiana would have more opportunities. There would be another season next year. They would go undefeated again. This time they went undefeated. They won the whole thing. But for some, the thing that they are a part of, there's not another opportunity for it. And now they've got to figure out what they're going to do moving forward. This is kind of like where we find the disciples following the crucifixion of Jesus. They're trying to figure it out. What happened? Everything seemed to be going great. Jesus was teaching things that were so amazing, so counter to the culture at the time. He taught with an authority unlike any other. He healed the afflictions of many people, some of whom were the outcasts because of their conditions, like lep the lepers. Jesus spent time with those who needed him most, the sinners, and he had compassion for them. He trained 12 disciples during his three-year ministry, and the disciples, they were ready for Jesus to take the throne, which really was rightly his. But then everything seemingly came crashing down around them. These guys had devoted three years of their lives to following Jesus, but in one night, he was arrested, he was put on trial, and he was crucified. He died, he was buried in a tomb, and that tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. Three years of their lives, that momentum is there. It's building and building and building until... It all comes crashing down. And now these disciples, these, 
these guys who are following Jesus, they're, they're left to ask the question, what now? What do I do now? Some of them, they stayed in Jerusalem. They were hiding from the authorities because they were worried that they would be arrested because they were Jesus' followers. Some, those who weren't part of the 12, some went home. And that's where we find this story in Luke chapter 24 of two people who are walking to a village on the third day following the crucifixion. And while they were on the road, they met someone. And so if you turn your Bibles with me to Luke 24, we're going to start in verse 13. We're just going to read through verse 16. Where it says, Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked, they discussed these things with each other. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So we've got these two disciples of Jesus who are walking to Emmaus. Apparently this is a village, as Luke tells us, it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now unfortunately we don't know the exact location of where Emmaus is. There's about six possible locations that people have proposed over the years. And uh, so we're probably going to be looking, uh, well, here's a map of one of them. Uh, I know it's small print, sorry. But there, Emmaus is the, the middle dot there. And then Jerusalem's to the right, and Bethany and Jericho that way um, on your map. So where they have Emmaus here is about 20 miles from Jerusalem. So we're probably looking for something a little bit closer. But they, this is an area where they have found a village and, and people have thought it was Emmaus. But it's a little bit outside what Luke says. Regardless, these two disciples of Jesus are walking on the road to Emmaus. They're headed home three days after the crucifixion. And they're talking with each other about what had happened. And then somebody who they are kept from recognizing, but we are told that it's Jesus, comes alongside of them. Now, if by chance you happen to be here today and you're new to this whole thing, you're probably thinking, wait a second. Didn't you just say that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried in a tomb with Roman guards around him? Yes, yes, I did. But we're going to get to that in a minute. So just take it. Jesus is there with him. Luke writes so that they're kept from recognizing who he was. And that's not the only time that we see the post-resurrection Jesus not being recognized. Mary Magdalene in John 20, verse 14 it says this, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Then even the disciples, as they were fishing in John 21, verse 4, it says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. So back to our two disciples on the road to Emmaus. One commentator writes that the passive, we're kept from recognizing, is a divine passive, which this means that God kept them from recognizing who Jesus was. Then Jesus speaks to them, and he asks them a question. Verse 17, he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? You can tell they're still grieving about what happened. It's almost like they didn't want to relive it, right? They, they stop, they stand still, they're looking down. 
I'm sure some of you have felt that kind of grief, that kind of sadness before where you don't really want to talk to anybody. I mean, they're, they're talking with each other, but you don't want to talk to people that you don't know when you're grieving. I, for me, it was when my grandfather passed away, when my mom's dad passed away. Uh, at the visitation, I, I needed to get away from everybody. Like, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to look at anybody. I, I just grieved. And I wonder if that's kind of how these two were feeling at this time. One of them, Cleopas, he answered Jesus, asking him a question. He's like, are, are you the only one who's been in Jerusalem who, who doesn't know the things that's happened? Which, of course, if Cleopas knew who he was asking this question to, yeah, Jesus knew what happened. He, he's the only one who knew actually everything that had happened. But he prompts them to explain it in verse 19. He says, what things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So what happened? They told him about Jesus, who was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. He taught with authority, they said. And it was things that nobody had heard anybody teach before, not in that way, as we read in gospel accounts like Matthew seven twenty nine. But it wasn't just that he taught. He backed it up with his actions as well through his deeds. Unfortunately, though, the religious leaders of the day, they weren't real happy with what Jesus was teaching, seeing it as blasphemy. He claimed to be God's son. So they tried to find ways to kill him. They finally did when one of his own disciples betrayed him. And then they turned him over to the Romans to be crucified. In verse 21, it says that the two on the road hoped that Jesus would be the one who was going to redeem Israel, that he was their Messiah, the king that the nation had longed for since the beginning, to overthrow the oppressors in the Romans. But it seemed like other potential messiahs before him, because there were a few who claimed to be the Messiah, he ended up just like all the others, it is what it seemed to them. He was killed, he was buried, and their dream was over. But then, as they told them, something amazing happened. Some of the women had gone to the tomb and came back with a story that they couldn't believe. So let's read that. Let's, let's go back to see what the women saw. It's just in verse 1 of chapter 24. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but... When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. We skip to verse 9 where it says, When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. 
But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. To the disciples, that story sounded strange, right? It sounded very weird, but ultimately it was the truth. And it got me to thinking, what are some other things that are unbelievable but true? And so I got on the internet where you find all good research and uh, looked at National Geographic, and here's, here are some things that they, they have. So did you know that a shark can grow and lose up to 30,000 teeth in its lifetime? 30,000, that's a lot of teeth. Or that hummingbirds weigh less than a penny. Some hummingbirds weigh less than a penny. Or that tigers can eat more than 80 pounds of meat in one sitting. I know you guys are so stunned by this. You're silent. I get it. What about this one? Cockroaches can live for over a week without a head. (laughs) Yeah, I knew that one would get you. Most people can see about 10 million different colors. An adult's blood vessels could circle the equator four times if it were laid end to end. I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend it. But then finally, the most unbelievable of them all, the inventor of the Pringles can. His remains are found in a Pringles can. It is unbelievable, but it's true. So imagine how that story that the women came back with would have sounded. Okay, so we went to the tomb with the spices, and when we got there, the stone that nobody could move by itself was rolled away from the door, and Jesus' body was gone. Then there were these two angels there, and they told us that Jesus had risen from the dead. How would you have responded? Now, it's not like the disciples hadn't seen somebody raised from the dead before. I mean, remember, Jesus just raised Lazarus from the grave only about a week before. Then there are a couple of stories. There's one of a little girl and there, there's a woman's son who he brought back to life. But in all of these, and in the disciples' defense, Jesus was always there. And he was the one who initiated. He's the one who brought them back to life. This situation seemed hopeless to them. So much that these two disciples, they're going away from Jerusalem, presumably headed home to Emmaus. They didn't believe that the story could be true. They didn't think it was. And, and that earned them a little bit of a rebuke from Jesus as we continue in uh, verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Does anybody here like to do puzzles? Anybody like puzzles? My family and I, we like to work on puzzles. We we work on one anytime we go on vacation. But I've always been intrigued by those puzzles that are a little bit different than normal puzzles. So I found one on Amazon that's called the impossible puzzle. What makes it impossible? Well, here's a picture of it. Yeah, it's a thousand pieces, and every single one of those is clear. (laughs) Now, I like to do puzzles, but I'm not insane. (laughs) I like to do puzzles where you have a picture, and you can see the picture, and you see it all coming together, like this picture of uh, classic Mickey Mouse cartoons. That that would be fun, right? Because you got each section where you could build little puzzles with each section. Like, that would be way more fun to work on than the 
other one. But what makes this puzzle a lot more enjoyable is that you've got the full picture on the box as a reference, right? Sometimes they even give you a poster of it. You, you could do it without the picture, and you could still get a lot done, but it would take a little bit longer, right? Being able to see the full picture, recognizing where all those pieces fit together in that picture helps when you're about to do some puzzling. Now, these guys on the road to Emmaus, they had the picture, but they weren't using it. After they told Jesus that the women found the tomb empty, but they didn't see Jesus, he rebukes them, calling them foolish and slow to believe. But then he teaches them, and he asks them the question, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Now, what that is probably going to bring to their mind is this passage from the prophet Isaiah's book in chapter 53. And so I'm going to turn there. And I'm just going to read the first nine verses because it doesn't need commentary. I just want you to listen to it. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, this is talking about the Messiah, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Why did the Messiah have to suffer these things? It was for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It is by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus then goes through the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, and he explained everything to these two. That's why the Old Testament is still important for us today, so that we can see the need for and the promise of our Savior the Messiah. Genesis 3.15, it's the first prophecy about the Messiah. It's when God is, is cursing the serpent after Adam and Eve fell. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And a fatal blow was struck to Christ on the cross. 
and yet he conquered death, and he will crush the serpent's head. And then there's Genesis 22:18, where God makes this promise to Abraham. He says, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham who will bless all nations. That's only two, three, if you include Isaiah 53, three prophecies over, of over 300 that were fulfilled in one man, Jesus. So let's finish the story. Back to Luke 24, verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So we went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So they got to their village in Emmaus, and Jesus acted like he was going to keep going down the road, right? But they, they asked him to stay with him with them because it was uh, nearly evening, and so he agreed. They went to the table to eat, and he broke the bread after giving thanks. And the wording here is just like it is in Luke 22 at the Last Supper, where Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. It's here where their eyes were opened and they recognized their teacher. And then he disappears from them. But something was stirred up inside these disciples. They talked about it. Their hearts were burning inside them. They, they knew something. There was something about this man. So what did they do? They got up and immediately went back to Jerusalem. All of a sudden, it didn't really matter that it was nearly evening. They went back to the 11 and, and told them their story. They went back and shared their good news that Jesus is alive. I read a story of a young man who was fighting in World War II when he was wounded on the battlefield. He laid there, but he had been given up for dead. Slowly, life slowly and painfully returned to him, and, and he thirsted for water. But nobody answered his cries. No one attended his wounds. Mercifully, he slipped into unconsciousness. But when he awoke, there was a chaplain who was bending over him. They were talking, and the chaplain says to him, You know, my boy, or you say that you were wounded on Good Friday and that you've been on the battlefield ever since. Do you know that this is Easter morning? And the soldier answered, How wonderful. For me, too, it's like a resurrection. Out there on the field, I died a thousand deaths. But somehow we don't mind the crucifixion when we are sure of the resurrection. The resurrection is so, so important. If it's not true, then where's our hope? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. 
that the resurrection is not true, then me up here, Rick up here, that's pointless. It's kind of a silly waste of our time. If the resurrection is not true, then the apostles were liars who went to their deaths because of it. If the resurrection is not true, then we are all still trapped in our sin. There's no meaning to life itself if the resurrection is not true. All hope is gone. And all life will ultimately end in the grave. But what if it is true? It is true. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Paul's saying, go check it out. Go talk to these guys. They'll tell you. Though some have fallen asleep. Jesus had to die so that we could live. It was the plan from the beginning. You see hints and promises throughout the Old Testament. You see the overarching story. You see that it all leads to the cross. It all leads to Calvary. Where the Son of God, who is both fully human and fully divine, died. Pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities. But the story does not end at the cross because Jesus conquered death. And that is what we celebrate today. That's why we come here on this day to celebrate and hear the good news that these two disciples and so many others over the past 2,000 years have shared that he is risen. He is our hope. And so if you haven't yet, follow him. He is inviting you to do that today. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He died so you could spend eternity with him. And if you've already made that decision, then take some time today and just kind of recharge it. Recharge that commitment to him. And we rejoice today because of what the angel in the tomb said. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we lean on that promise. We stand on that promise. That you, you did not leave your son in the grave. That he is risen. He has conquered death. Because we can't do it on our own. That he is the way, the truth, and the life, Lord. So, Father, we, we thank you. We celebrate that today. We do that at this moment in our service as we come around the table for communion as well. Where like Jesus did with those, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus at their home, he took the bread, he broke it, he gave thanks. We do the same to remember the sacrifice that he made. We take the bread representing his body. We take the juice representing his blood. And we remember the sacrifice, but we also remember that he conquered death and he is no longer in that tomb. And we are so thankful for that. Help us today, Lord, to live in light of that truth. 
live our lives for Jesus. We thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.